If you have your Bibles with, with you this morning, I'll invite you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. And again, our focus is going to be on verse 15, as it was last week, if you recall. And we're going to summarize this whole eight weeks of preaching about developing a biblical worldview. And we'll talk about what it is and what it means to have the proper perspective according to our biblical worldview on what reality really is, what is real in life. So beginning in verse 15, it says, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. What a wonderful verse of Scripture. Let's pray for a moment this morning. Father, we commit this time to you in Christ Jesus. We lift him up, Lord, so that the world might be drawn to him by the preaching and teaching of your word, your truth, which is eternal. Father, we thank you that your truth is everlasting, that it never changes, even as you never change, because, Father, you are the creator of the world, the universe. All that man has seen, and even more that he has never seen, or even imagined. But thank you, Father, for your wondrous grace and your mercy toward us, for your love made manifest in Jesus Christ our Lord. We thank you, Father, for the promises that you give us, the promises that are forever and eternal. Lord, open up our hearts and minds this morning, that we might absorb as never before the reality of your truth and what it means to us and what it is to have the privilege of making a defense to everyone who asks for us to give an account for the hope that is in us. May that hope be made stronger by the presence of your Holy Spirit so that Christ Jesus the Lord is glorified. In his name we pray and ask these things. Amen. These last uh, seven weeks, this is the eighth week in which we've preached about a biblical worldview, I just wanted to let you know that uh, you have heard me refer to Dr. David A. Noble. And this is his book called Understanding the Times, the Collisions of Today's Competing Worldviews. It's fairly comprehensive. Then this is another shorter version, if you will, called Thinking Like a Christian, again by David A. Noble, Understanding and Living a Biblical Worldview. Uh, and then on the back of your handout this morning, of your study guide, is another thing I want to refer to. Uh, it is the, uh, the very last visual, by the way, this, is this one right here. This is the last visual that we'll use this morning in this presentation or this, this sermon. And it has at the very bottom of it uh, the resource called www.allaboutworldview.org. And this is uh, the website for Summit Ministries, which is founded by Dr. Noble, and has even more information about it. It's got films, or DVDs, video, and it has a lot of written material about all the various worldviews, as well as the Christian or biblical worldview. And I would encourage you, if you want to do more work, to look into that. There's another handout. It is this, printed on two sides. This is on one side, this is on the other. And this is a comparison of the competing worldviews you'll find that we've discussed during this process. This is six competing worldviews. Uh, Christianity being obviously the one on the left as it starts there and talks about the nine, or the ten disciplines, pardon me, the ten disciplines that uh, relate to the worldview and over here is another thing that we're not going to discuss this morning, but you can do some research on your own. And this is the redemptive order and the creative order that God has established through his son, Jesus Christ. And how it really began in the beginning when God created the heaven and the earth. And so uh, I would encourage you to do some further study to see how this all fits together. But if you have any questions about what are some of the basic elements, and we're going to talk about some of that this morning, 
about competing worldviews, you'll find it in this handout that gives that complete comparison. So I encourage you to do some research far and beyond what you see today. So what is a biblical worldview? As remember, and we've kind of said this every Sunday for the last eight weeks, the term worldview refers to any ideology, philosophy, movement, or religion that provides an overarching understanding of God, the world, and man's relation to God and the world. It is, as David Noble said in a summary, it's a bundle of ideas, beliefs, convictions, and values. A bundle of ideas, beliefs, convictions, and values. And if you had that bundle of sticks under your arm, one of, the stick, one of those sticks is going to be theology. It starts with that. That's why it's the first in the list of, of comparison. And you and I, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, have a theistic belief in a supernatural God. And you have a choice. You can be a theistic worldview, or can have a theistic worldview, or an atheistic worldview, or a pantheistic worldview, and we'll talk a little bit greater in detail about that. But it's overarching in that it, it covers every aspect of how we live and move and have our being as Christians. Every aspect. Nothing's excluded. And you'll see how that fits together, hopefully, as we go through this sermon this morning. There are some key questions that we must answer as Christians with respect to our worldview. And the three questions we're going to talk about this morning are this. Do we really understand the purpose and the implications of a biblical worldview? We're not here just to talk about something because there's nothing else to talk about, or to talk about this because it's fashionable, or it might be relevant to understanding the times, but it is imperative that we talk about it because it has everything to do with what we believe as Christians. Why do Christians need to understand other worldviews? There's a reason for that. And matter of fact, and we've used this scripture before, 2 Corinthians 10.5 says, We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That's 2 Corinthians 10.5. It's important that we understand that you and I have a responsibility to take captive every thought to Christ, that is to bring everything before him, and let God speak to us concerning these things. We are to search the word and understand comprehensively what the word of God has, and there's a reason we need to do this, because we need to stand against these lofty things, these philosophies of men that have been raised up that are contrary to the truth of God. We have a responsibility as Christians. So which worldview is true? And again, I'm quoting for Dr. Noble. Whether we choose to believe biblical Christianity, Islam, secular humanism, Marxism and Leninism, or cosmic humanism, or postmodernism, we are accepting a worldview that describes the others as hopelessly distorted. Only one view depicts things as they really are, all other perspectives must be out of step with human nature and the universe. We have a choice. One of these is relevant, and the others are not. So which one is true? Only one worldview, and this again I'm quoting from Dr. Noble, only one worldview describes the facts of a universe that Christians believe was created by God and was important enough that he sent his son to redeem it. These differences exist, and since there, are, there can be no reconciliation between Christianity and opposing worldviews, everyone must examine the evidence to arrive at the truth. There's no way to reconcile Christianity with cosmic humanism. There's no way to reconcile Christianity with secular humanism. None of this applies. So we have to come to the conclusion as to what really is the truth. The essence of second, and what I want to do right now is just kind of go through about four of these primary uh, dominant worldviews that are competing against Christianity and talk about the essence of what they are. And we're just giving you some scattering. You could go into greater detail, and this is why I want to encourage you, by the way, if you get online with allaboutworldviews.org, with Summit Ministries, you can get into greater detail of understanding all of these 
these things we're talking about this morning. But let's, let's look at secular humanism, and it's appropriate we start with that, because as I mentioned to you before, it is the religion of our society. This is, by the way, the religion of the United States of America, and elsewhere as well. But it is our religion, and by the way, it's been recognized by the Supreme Court as a religion, and it intended to be a religion. The Human Manifesto I, written in 1933, even states that clearly it was an alternative to the Christianity, but it is a religion. It is a religious worldview in which man is the measure. Mankind is the ultimate norm by which truth and values can be determined. We don't need God, humans, secular humanism says. We only need our own common sense and reasoning. That's all we need. The humanists trust the scientific method as the only sure way of knowing anything. So if anything cannot be observed, tested, and experimented on, it doesn't exist. And that's an amazing statement when you stop to think about it because of this. That's really describing empirical science. That's what empirical science is all about. You can observe it. You can test it. You can replicate it. You can understand it because it's repeatable. It's knowable. And yet, this is what, and by, and by the way, <laughs> humanism has really kind of declared that evolution is a settled science. It's done. It's over with. There's no discussion. There's no way you need to describe anything else going on about uh, evolution because it's declared as settled science. So the humanists trust the scientific method as the only sure way of knowing that. Humanists also believe that science, reason, and historical experience are sufficient guides for figuring out what is wrong in any situation. In other words, we don't need divine moral law. We don't need to know what and understand that. All we need is just to do our own reasoning from historical experience, and we can determine what's right or wrong. Science has proven the theory of evolution to the extent that it's no longer a theory but a scientific fact. According to this fact, man is the most highly evolved of all creatures and is now responsible for directing and aiding the evolutionary process. Furthermore, man's inherent goodness enables every individual to achieve mental health through the fulfillment of physical and material needs. Remember what we said about secular humanism, and this also applies in great degree about Marxism and Leninism, is that only the physical reality is real. There's no spirit. There's no soul of man. That's what psychology, we define psychology as the study of the soul. But in terms of secular humanism, there is no soul of man that supersedes or is separate from the body. It's only what's in this body that counts, and the brain is what is the mind. And after this brain ceases to exist and, 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 and serves no more, then there is no more of us. That's it. It's all over with. But as Christians, we know that there is a soul. It tells us that in Genesis that God created man as a living soul. And so therefore, we have a completely different perspective, and we'll talk more about that later. Humanists believe that one world government is the next logical step on man's evolution to the, on the road to utopia. One world government. And then government must be granted authority over the economic affairs as a consequence of that. Since we're going to have one world government, government needs to control the economies and the affairs of men to make it better for everyone as a whole. The next visual that you have is a distinguished looking gentleman by the name of John Dewey. And as I mentioned to you, if you've been in high school, you can remember the time you were introduced to the Dewey system. When you had to go and do maybe your first research paper. And that wasn't fun for most of us, but uh, nevertheless, we had to do it, whether we wanted to or not. John Dewey was the inventor of that, but he's also recognized as the father of modern American education. And this was a comment that Dewey wrote in the New Republic back in, in December of 1928. He said, there is no God and no soul. Hence, there are no needs for the props of traditional religion. With dogma and creed excluded, then immutable, that is unchangeable truth, is also dead and buried. There is no room for fixed natural law or permanent moral absolutes. This is the man who basically has founded our educational system. Does it tell you why 
Our educational system is in the shape it is. I think it explains a lot. Because God is utterly excluded from it. An amazing thing when you consider that in the 19th century, it was quite common for school children to be raised and taught with the Bible as one of the textbooks by which they learned to read and write. It wasn't a scientific textbook, but we understood scientific things because of it. Nevertheless, the fact is, is that that is, that is one of the reasons why I believe our, our educational system is in as pathetic a condition as possible because of this kind of a belief system that was made reasonable and logical in terms of secular humanism. And it explains much. And also I put it here because it is a good segue to understanding as you move from secular humanism to Marxist-Leninism. And by the way, and that is, that's a great segue because they're both atheistic in their outlook. They're rooted and grounded in atheism. There is no God. It says that Marx was an atheist before he became a socialist. Engels and Lenin agreed that religion was a drug or a spiritual booze that must be combated. As you remember, Lenin's famous remarks were, was that uh, religion was the opium of the people, no, opium of the masses. Marxism promotes the theory of punctuated evolution, whereby evolutionary changes occur over a relative quick period of time, followed by periods of little to no evolutionary change. And this kind of differing came about from Darwinian evolution uh, to this punctuated evolution concept uh, because of essentially what you would describe as uh, dialectical materialism. And I couldn't begin to try to explain that to you in a million years, because I think it's as illogical as most of man's philosophy really is. But the fact is, is that they differed with Darwin and came up with a different type of evolution than the Darwinian model. Then the essence of Marxism and Leninism is that the Marxist worldview also depends on the theories of evolution and spontaneous generation. Karl Marx, Marx made it very clear from the origin of the species contained the scientific basis for his views on class struggle. Marxism believes in a society in which everyone is both the owners and of the means of production and their own employees. In this scenario, there is no need for government because every man can be trusted to act responsibly and rightly, which also negates the need for church or family. Remember, we were describing in the economic system that basically uh, socialism was really the transitory kind of government before we ultimately reach the utopia of communism or socialism in its fullest sense. And we talked in those terms uh, about the fact that um, it, it's, a, it's, it's kind of an amazing thing that uh, we could ever depend on fallen man to create a utopia. I don't think I could even think of a more ridiculous thing because never in the history of mankind has fallen man been able to create that perfect system. As a matter of fact, probably the most perfect system that man has ever evolved over the years, over the centuries, is the one in which we're living in. It's called democracy, a Republican democracy. I say Republican with a small r. Uh, it is essentially the, the people who have given permission to be governed by their representatives. And it is truly democratic in every sense of the word, though yet uh, a republic kind of uh, really kind of puts a stop to some of that, but I don't want to get involved in all those politics. But the fact is, is that we have probably been, been gifted with as good a government that man has ever had. I might have mentioned to you a few Sundays ago, there is a book called The 5,000-Year Leap, which is talked about as this government being founded by men who were basically theistic in outlook. They certainly were at least deistic. They believed in a God who created the world and then kind of stepped aside and let things happen. At least they believed in that. That was, for instance, John Adams' basic philosophy. But they were, for the most part, theistic. They believed in a supernatural God who had given unalienable rights to man. And therefore, this was the unalienable rights that we were trying to ensure by our Declaration of Independence and then by our Constitution. But it goes on. There's a lot more to it than just that. But the fact is that Marxism believes in a completely different society. 
that every man can be trusted to act in his own best interest and the interest of his fellow man. We know that fallen man is not like that. Let's talk about cosmic humanism. This is New Ageism. We haven't discussed a lot of this, but this is an emerging worldview. It is emerging. There's more newism out there, New Ageism, than there probably ever has been before. And it's becoming prevalent in every aspect of society. And New Ageism, or cosmic humanism, believes that all things are divine, are part of God. It's pantheistic in its outlook. People, rocks, trees, stars, everything, this chair, you and I, are all part of God. Since everything and everyone is a part of God, we have to keep in touch with a God within to achieve cosmic unity. I've been striving for cosmic unity for a long time. I'm being very facetious, obviously. Uh, but you just, it, it's just an, an unimaginable. It's just like, remember the word game you used to be able to play? You could take one from this column and another from this column. You could combine them and come up with all sorts of new terms that were utterly meaningless. Well, that's kind of what cosmic unity is, I believe. But every individual is divine in the new age. They need only get in touch with the universal God consciousness within, uh, within in order to act morally. Mankind is evolving from disharmony to harmony until evolution guides men and women out of the material into becoming completely spiritual beings. Evolution is central to New Age doctrine because it ensures mankind's eventual progression to godhood. And what New Ageism or cosmic humanism is saying is that eventually we're going to become less and less a spiritual material, pardon me, a material human being, and we're going, we're going to become a completely spiritual human being. We're going to become like God as we evolve and, and ascend to this kind of special human being. That's a hard thing to imagine without a Savior, but basically, by the way, cosmic humanism is atheistic. That's its roots, and ever since the word. As you can probably guess as you read this, it's also pantheistic as well. But there's a lot of atheism involved in this. Society and the, environmental and the environment stifle our knowledge of the God within. Thus, the aim of psychology should be to cause each individual to realize that they are fundamentally perfect and therefore should trust their intuitive urges. Evolution is constantly moving mankind toward God consciousness. Therefore, man and all reality are progressing toward a unified enlightenment. The, the fittest already recognize this. The unfit are the Christians and other proponents of dogmatic worldviews who act as a hindrance to evolutionary forces. So it makes pretty clear the difference between the biblical worldview and the cosmic human worldview. Let's talk about Islam for a moment. About a fifth of the world's population uh, believes in Islam or Muslims. And Islam reveres Allah, which they consider to be the one and only God, the only creator and master of the universe. And Muslims contend that this God is the same as the God of the Old and New Testaments, the God of Christians, the God of Jews. But if you begin to search this in its entirety, in depth, and understand, and by the way, this is an interesting thing to know, but in the Quran the book that was given to the prophet Muhammad, Jesus, Isa, Isa, I-S-A, Jesus is mentioned many times. And he's acknowledged as virgin-born of Mary. He is called the Messiah, the anointed one. Muhammad's never called the Messiah. Muhammad was never virgin-born. And it also acknowledges that Jesus ascended into heaven. But now when you begin to explain, and this is mentioned in many verses in the Quran. However, when you begin to compare all this in greater detail, you begin to understand that this is a completely different God and a completely different Jesus than the one that we understand in our New Testament that God's revealed to us through his word. Although affirming some form of distinction between the body and soul, Islam's view of human nature diverges from the Christian understanding. The Muslim view of human nature does not include the attribute of fallenness. 
Rather than seeing Adam's sin as giving every human being a sinful nature, Islam sees their disobedience as having been completely forgiven, thus leaving no trace to the generations that have followed. So there's no fallen nature of man. There's no sin nature as far as they're concerned. That doesn't mean that man can't, can sin because he can. Islam gives you a way of repenting of those sins, but it's a salvation of works, if you will. He makes it clear. Also, Islam intends that all nations should be ruled under an Islamic theocracy, which is simply a national government set up under the rule of Allah's divine sanction as expressed in the Quran and Sharia law. Under Islam, there is no such thing as a separation of mosque and state. And by the way, this is an important thing to understand. Europe's finally beginning to understand this, especially like in France, because they do not respect this wall of separation between church and state. There is no such thing. The Sharia law dictates man's thinking and his conduct, the the Muslim's thinking and conduct, in every phase of society, in in every discipline we've talked about, and even more. It talks about this in great detail. And whereas we have found today that the liberal mindset, especially the secular humanist mindset, says there's going to be a wall of separation. We don't, we're going to keep religion and, and the state completely separate. We don't want to talk about God in this respect. But there's not going to be that respect for the separation of church and state when it comes to Islam and the separation of mosque and state. It's going to be very much an involved thing. And if you have any questions about that, just ask the French. When the uh, Muslim time comes to pray, all traffic stops in whatever area they have a mosque. It comes to a complete halt because they occupy the streets in order to do this. And they do that intentionally. And they defy French law in every sense of the word, all the time. And that's the coming thing. We're seeing that same thing begin to trend in this way in this country. It's not nearly as bad as it is in France, but it's going to get that way eventually. There's no separation of mosque and state. In contrast to the Christian worldview that affirms that God reveals himself, uh, reveals both his will and himself, Islam holds that God has not revealed himself and his nature, but rather his law. Indeed, the Sharia itself is considered to be a timeless manifestation of the will of God, subject neither to history nor circumstances. Well, let's talk about the Christian or biblical worldview for a moment and why Christianity offers a far better alternative than any other worldview. I don't care whether it's the the six we've talked about or compared to that worksheet I gave you, or whether it's the four that we mentioned earlier this morning, whatever it is, I think Christianity shines brighter because it's light, it's truth. And we can understand it. God's revealed himself in such a way that we can understand him. And we're going to look at those ten disciplines and talk about it, but before I would say, in every discipline, whether it's from theology to history, the biblical worldview shines brighter because it has more, a more realistic explanation for the reality that we face in our, in our world. It's more realistic. It better explains man and the universe. It's a far better explanation of how man got here and how the universe got here and where it came from. It is even more scientific. And matter of fact, in this day and age, by the way, and remember we mentioned when we were talking about biology a few Sundays ago, that over 600 PhDs, scientists, who had their, their, their PhDs, had signed the document essentially saying that Darwinism was not an adequate explanation. Remember that? 600. I think, I think it's now even greater in number. This happened not too many years ago. But the fact is, is that Darwinism, evolution, evolutionary Darwinism has been really discredited scientifically in so many ways. And when you glance out at the universe that has been revealed to our generation as never before because of the Hubble telescope, and when you see the, the immenseness 
of the universe that was, we never imagined was there until we looked through the Hubble telescope. And when you look at the intricacies and the complexity of microbiology, you understand the complexity of life. And you come to the conclusion there had to be an intelligent design behind it. We talked about that with the, the analogy of the watch. People just didn't take parts and shake them up in a box, and out came a finished product called a watch that kept accurate time. It had to be designed by an architect, and that is our universe. So when you look at Christianity, it is more scientific. The Christian worldview is more scientific than the secular humanist worldview or the Marxist-Leninist worldview. It is also more intellectually satisfying and it is more intellectually defensible. And most important of all, it is in keeping and it is faithful to the one person who has the greatest influence in heaven and earth, Jesus Christ himself. For by him all things were created, whether in the heavens or in earth, visible or invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created for him and by him. It tells us in Colossians chapter 1. A fellow by the name of Edward Ramsell wrote this. He said, The natural man is no less certainly a man of faith than the spiritual, but his faith is the ultimacy of something other than the Word of God. The spiritual man is no less certainly a man of reason than the natural, but his reason, like that of every man, functions within the perspective of his faith. So in, with, with respect to theology, we have the evidence for the existence of a personal and holy God a design universe and an earth prepared for human life that outweighs any argument of atheism or pantheism. Also with respect to philosophy, our view of reality. Remember, that's what we talked about. Christian philosophy embraces the meaningful, purposeful life, a life in which one can shape one's beliefs according to a coherent, reasonable, and truthful worldview. Also, as you look at ethics... The concept that right and wrong or objective absolute that, that that there is right and wrong or objective as absolutes is based on the nature and character of a personal loving God, and that is far superior, by the way, both theoretically and practically, to any concept of moral relativism. With respect to law, the concept of the moral order proceeds from and reflects the character of a loving, holy, and righteous God offers far greater hope than mankind than the notion that the law evolved over time from the natural rights of man. There was an interesting thing I wrote, and I got this off the website, and talked about Ravi Zacharias. And one of the things he made, this is, this is his conclusion, that he said, Christian theists have concluded the existence of evil can provide evidence for the existence of God. And he said, consider the argument that was put forth by Ravi Zacharias in his book, A Shattered Village, The Real Faith of Atheism. In the appendix, he explains it like this. He has five points to make. And he says, point number one, yes, there's evil in the world. Point number two, if there is evil, there must also be good. And that's a problem that atheists have to contend with. If there is evil, there must be good. Three, if there is good and evil... There must be a moral law on which to judge between good and evil. There has to be a moral law to judge between good and evil. Fourth, if there is a moral law, then there must be a moral law giver. And fifthly, for the theist, this points to God. And that's a good argument for the relative, for the relative uh, I should say not for the relative. It's a good argument for those against the, the theory of relative law or relative morals. It just depends on the circumstances. We have absolute truth on which to base the way that we live and move and have our being as Christians. Also, Christianity shines brighter with respect to biology. The concept of a living God creating life fits the evidence better than any notion of spontaneous generation and microevolution. With respect to psychology, understanding, remember, psychology is the study of the soul. 
with understanding human beings as being body and soul, yet sinful, imperfect, and in need of a Savior, far outweighs secular expectations for humans to be guilt-free and inherently perfectible. With respect to sociology, the biblical doctrine of a family, of a, of a family with father, mother, and child transcends any experiments in trial marriage, open marriage, or same-sex marriage. And that's, uh, that goes without reason. When we look at uh, the purpose that God had for establishing the family, the church, and the state. Politics, the Christian belief that human rights are a gift from God, protected by government, is more logically persuasive, morally appealing, and politically sound than any atheistic theory that maintains human rights are derived from the state. So when we look at those aspects, those first eight it's clear that I think we have a more reasonable, logical choice as Christians in how we view what God has done for us than we ever would in any other worldview. But let's look at economics. The concept of private property and using resources responsibly, that stewardship, to glorify God is nobler than the notion of state ownership that destroys individual responsibilities, initiative, and incentives to work. And lastly, remember we talked about history being linear. It has a beginning. It has an end. It began when God created the heavens and the earth in Genesis 1.1. It shall end in Revelation at the great white throne judgment of God when all of us will stand before the throne and a just and wonderful God. It has a beginning and an end. The veracity of the Bible and its promise of a future kingdom ushered in by Jesus Christ is far more hopeful than any utopian schemes dreamed up by sinful, mortal human beings. So when we consider all of this, and we've just touched very briefly on those ten disciplines, I think we can assume and we can be sure that Christianity shines brighter than secular humanism or cosmic humanism our Marxism-Leninism, our post-modern age newism, cosmic humanism, all of these things, it, it shines far, far brighter and offers a more logical, optimistic, and truthful view of those disciplines and God's way he's working in the universe and with man. Now, why do we need to have a biblical worldview? What's the reasoning behind it? Go back to Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. It says, Therefore, as you have received Jesus Christ the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you have been instructed and overflowing with gratitude. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of man, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. See to it that no one takes you captive. I'm going to tell you, a lot of Christians today have been deceived. As a matter of fact, uh, Jesus warned that uh, in, the, in the latter time, there will come many Christs, many Messiahs, many men claiming to be Messiahs. And if it were not for the God shortening the time of the tribulation, he said many of the elect would even be deceived. We need, as God's elect as believers in Jesus Christ, we need to be soundly rooted and grounded in the word, understanding fully all the implications of our worldview. Unfortunately, there are, and remember we've given this statistic before, that George Barla in his research declared that only 9% of born-again believers, and only 5%, by the way, of evangelicals, actually had a biblical worldview. What kind of a worldview did they have? The fact is, it is easy. I look back in my own experience, in my own immaturity as a believer in Jesus Christ and a follower of him, and I remember, remember I, I, I commented on that time that my chaplain tra challenged me. He said, why do you believe what you believe? And I began to think about it. But the fact is, is that many Christians have never thought about it. They don't have an idea of what they believe and why they believe. They don't have an idea 
of what their worldview is with respect to philosophy or biology or economics or history or ethics or law or psychology, much less theology. They don't have an idea what it is. And what they have is basically because, by the way, all of us have a worldview, no exceptions. The way we think of things, the way we look at things, the reasoning we apply in making our decisions day by day, it is affected by our worldview. It's influenced by that. That's the overarching aspect that we talked about at the very beginning. So we have a worldview, and we are charged not to be, be taken captive by any of the vain philosophies of man. The wisdom of God is what we are seeking. And if you look at the first two chapters of 1 Corinthians, you should have a clear understanding that the wisdom of God is far superior to anything that mortal man shall ever philosophize about. We need a biblical worldview because that's the way we ought to think. That's thinking like God. That's having the mind of Christ. That's what it's all about. So we never, are never to be taken captive by that kind of vain philosophy that comes to the world. It, and by the way, it's very enticing. It sounds reasonable. It sounds hopeful in some respects. But when you examine it in its fullness, you understand that it's not. Because Satan always uses a certain element of truth in his doctrines. He always uses a certain aspect of truth, half-truths if you will, to build upon. And it deceives men. He is, after all, the father of all lies. He's the master deceiver of the universe. Began with Adam and Eve and is continued thereafter. Also, that verse of scripture we started with this morning in 1 Peter 3.15. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Set him aside. Concentrate on him. As truly the Lord in your innermost being. As Lord and Jesus Christ in your innermost being. In your heart of hearts. And be ready to make a defense. This is a charge that he has for us. Be ready to make a defense to Everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Ask you to give an account for the hope. We are charged with this responsibility. In Matthew, it said, 24, 24, it said, I mentioned this, the false Christ and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. You need to have and be rooted and grounded in God's in God's revealed word in the Bible, in order to be able to make that kind of defense for those that ask for you to give an account. Also, taking every thought captive to Christ. And as we mentioned earlier, this is all about what the purpose of having a biblical worldview about is that we might tear down the strongholds, that we might reveal as the lies for the lies that they are, the competing worldviews that have captured so many. We are to be taken captive by obedience to Christ. We can bring every thought before him. There's nothing that we cannot bring before his presence in prayer in order to better understand what God's will for us is. John 8.31 says this, As Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed, If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Bringing every thought captive means simply to bring those things before God in prayer, to ask for his wisdom and insight that we might understand what he has for us. As we close this morning, what are we to do? And I've captured this visual on the back of your study guide because it gives some scriptural references that are important because Christ said to us in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. You are to be light so that it might reveal the, in the darkness the truth of God. In, in Ephesians 5.8 it says, walk as children of light. And also we are to pray. As you look in the Old Testament in Solomon's dedication of the temple where he said, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, and I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sins, and will heal their land. That's, that's Second Chronicles 7.14.
Also, in Colossians 1, verses 9 through 11, it says, For this reason also, and this was Paul writing to the church, Colossae, and praying that they might grow in the nature of Christ in this way. He says, For this reason also, since the day we've heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you might be filled with a knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. God intends for you and I to be filled with a knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that we might walk in a manner that's worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. We are to be steadfast. And by the way, I don't know how you could be steadfast without a biblical worldview. That's what you need if you want to be steadfast. Also, it says that we should study. And in 2 Timothy 2.15, it says, Be diligent to present yourselves approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Some people think that that was written to Timothy because Timothy was a near apostle in ever since the word. He really was an apostle in that day and age, and therefore this was an apostolic exhortation doesn't relate to you and I as Christians. Well, that's not true in any sense of the word. It applies to us. We are to study to show ourselves approved as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, to be able to accurately handle the word of truth. We have no excuse if we remain ignorant. Also, as you look at... The other exhortations, we are to understand the times. In the very first sermon we preached about this, this was one of our, our scripture references we talked about in, in um, uh, 1 Chronicles 12, 32. Remember when all of Israel came together? This was after King David was really uh, uh, came to, to take the throne, after Saul was dead. And the men of Issachar gathered, and it said of them that the sons of Issachar were men who understood the times with knowledge of what Israel should do. And the fact is, is that it talked about all the other tribes and the numbers of soldiers they sent uh, together. But with Issachar, it related this particular thing. The sons of Issachar were men who understood the times, and they had a knowledge of what Israel should do. And that's what we need to be with respect to our times. We need to understand the times we're in. It's a different time than it ever has been before. And we need to understand what to do. And I'll tell you this for sure. Having a biblical worldview will be integral to doing that. It is absolutely necessary if we're going to understand the times and be the witness that God has asked us to be. We are to rebuild the foundations. And there's a, there's a word there in Psalms 11.3, the foundations are destroyed. What can the righteous do if those foundations are destroyed? And also, we are to get into the Word. In Psalm 119, 105, it says, Thy Word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path. Also, Psalms 119, 169 says, Let thy cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your Word. Psalmist also said, The unfolding of his Word gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. And you read through Psalms 119, which is one of the more glorious chapters in the, in the Old Testament, or in all the Bible for that matter, because it talks about God's word, and that's talking about God's truth. And we ought to have that same joy that the psalmist had in 119 as we survey the truth of God. Also, we are to... Spread the word with, with courage and convictions. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is how we live. Remember that quote I read a while ago about the fact that the men of faith are not just some people who accept blindly the word that's revealed in the written form. But they are people of reason. Isaiah 1.18 says, Come, let us reason together. Let us reason together. God never intended us to be mindless. He intended us to use our minds, for our minds to be enriched so that we might manifest the mind of Christ. So we need to think about that. And that's why we said there in 1 Peter 3.15, 
but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks for you to give an account for the hope that's in you. That's what it's all about. That's what this whole thing with worldview has to do. I'm not trying to put a philosophy of man on you, but I, I hope that what you have understood during these eight weeks of sermons is that the biblical worldview touches every aspect. It's why it's called an overarching, an overarching philosophy, an overarching ideology, a way of faith that touches everything in our life. And when you began to look at Christianity being far brighter than any alternative that man has ever offered. I mean, the best hope that you see with Marxism-Leninism is in this place called utopia that will come about when man comes to the state of which he is perfectible. The best thing that cosmic humanism or new ageism has to offer is that somehow we're going to evolve from this materialistic body to become completely spiritual and we'll become like God because God's in everything from this chair to the clock on the wall to the trees and the rocks and everything else. The fact is, is that when you look at the word of God, his revealed word through the Bible, which, by the way, is trustworthy and divinely inspired, profitable for teaching, reproof and correction and training in righteousness. When you look at God's word in all of this way, you understand that there is a better way than anything that man can ever, can ever imagine, can ever begin to understand. I encourage you to do it. I encourage you to get in the word and prove God for what he has said and ask us to do. This is something that every one of us are capable of. He's not calling us to be great apologists. He's calling us to be witnesses because the witness of God is greater than the testimony of man. This is the simple thing. That's why I put that web website address to you on the, on the bottom of this visual. I encourage you to get in there. And matter of fact, maybe you'll think that there is some aspect of some competing worldview that you would like to really become familiar with. Maybe you've got a neighbor who's been really seduced by cosmic humanism. And you need to understand fully what all of that means so that your witness might really begin to ring true. And you might be able to show them why the biblical worldview, based on the truth that God's revealed through his word, is a far better alternative than that which leads to the path of death. You might be able to save someone's life by being able to reveal to them and tear down, by the way, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are mighty for the destruction of fortresses. The philosophies of man can be destroyed by the truth of God. Just let God direct you to how he wants you to do that. I challenge you to think about your worldview and be sure that it's centered on the truth of Christ. And when you do that, God will be able to do marvelous things through you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this special day, for this time of celebration with our brothers and sisters from the Spanish congregation, for the blessings we received in so doing that. Thank you, Father, for your word of truth, which is eternal. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are your ways above our ways, Father. Father, your word never returns to you void. It accomplishes its purpose. I pray that your word might accomplish its purpose, that God, your Holy Spirit, would encourage us to study and show ourselves approved as workmen who need not be ashamed. Lord, who rightly divide the word of truth. Father, let your light shine brightly in our lives, upon our minds and our hearts. Lead us deeper and deeper day by day into your word of truth, which is everlasting. For we ask this in the name above all names, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.